The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call, 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can access old archive shows as well as ask a question via the listener inquiry button. So here we are, uh, not in the studio. Instead, all of us doing our show from home again. Uh, but here's some good news this week in uh, the sense that retail opened up. If you had uh, st- uh, street front access as well, we saw parks, golf courses, uh, boat landings, that sort of thing opened up. So that's got to be good news for the economy as you start to see things going. And I even noticed gas prices starting to go up a bit. Yeah. What? That's not fair. <laughs> Hi, Scott. How are you? How are you guys? Good, Excellent. good. Excellent. It's, you know, it's not, nice to see everybody implied this morning. Yeah, <laughs> yes. You know, we never used to coordinate the color of our clothes when we're in person, but now that we're looking at each other on a little screen here, it was it was apropos that we're all wearing plaid. So maybe we should invite all the listeners to get their plaid on today. Very official. <laughs> so, you know what? Um, there's something about the psychology of just feeling better that things are opening up. And whether it's, you know, you could go to some of the parks. Uh, certainly the lineup at golf courses, some people, I, I heard one, I think it was Coketown Woods, it took 75 minutes uh, to totally fill up Saturday's tea times. And it, it was crazy. Again, Saturday was uh, the nicer of the days last week. But, uh, yes, in, in general, everybody's feeling just a little bit more comfortable. And uh, it's, you know, still keeping that physical distancing and, and a lot of them wearing masks, which is also great. I think one thing that was interesting this week, too, was we saw a um, significant uh, strong gains in the U.S. stock market on what would be our holiday Monday, and that was a result of some updated information on a a coronavirus vaccine from uh, a company, and uh, that spurred a lot of activity, almost over a 4% jump in the market. Yes, and and you know what? Um, You can just see see everybody's kind of chomping at the bit, waiting for some good news, and whether it was trying to get to a a park or a golf course or a marina or what have you, or on the other side, as Andy just said, the stock market's going up, which was great. But it, it's it's a fickle thing. Um, and, you know, we, I've, I've often cited Delbar as one of the sources I use to help, you know, try to create what, what makes people tick as far as investment decisions go. And there's so many factors that go into making decisions. In general, the average investor far underperforms the actual investments they're in because they're not in them long enough or they pull money out when the market's gone down. And so do exactly the opposite way you should be doing. They're selling when it's low. And quite frankly, they're often buying when it's high. And I'm going to go through some of the different things that just are a great part of the human DNA. And we'll start with hurting. And that one there is just simply copying the behavior of others in the face of unfavorable outcomes. And we see it time and time again. People generally just jump. It feels great. They'll just jump into it. So um, probably the cannabis stock was a, a recent phenomenal that where people were just buying it. And they had no earnings. There was nothing that suggested they were well-priced. But everybody wanted a piece of it because people were making money. And it just felt good. In fact, it felt safer because other people were doing it. But it also, we often see what happens on the other end when things start to drop 
they all started losing money. Less of a party on the downside, lots of talk when it's going up. And you don't hear a lot of people talking about how they still have some of that cannabis stock. Uh, regret is another one. And right now, I would suggest there's a whole lot of people that are experiencing this, and those people would be the ones that sold back in March. And because they felt that the market con- would continue to drop, and now there's this feeling of regret because they've seen the market come back, in some cases, depending on the actual area you're in, almost right back to where it was. Uh, the technology area and the healthcare area has almost fully recovered. Now, generally speaking, people are about halfway back or just slightly better than halfway back to where they were at the peaks, which was February the 19th. So then there's media response. There's a a tendency for us to react to the news without any reasonable examination. Now, that could be good or bad. Andy mentioned about a possible vaccine. Well, then the market goes up 4%. Was Was that a good, you know, a reasonable outcome because of the market, who's to say? Um, It's just, it often takes up to six months for these things to go. But again, it was good news and the market looks for those things. And a lot of people, obviously a lot more buyers. Um, It was our holiday, so we we sat on the sidelines. Our markets weren't open, but the U.S. stock markets were. Optimism, um, believe that good things always happen to me and bad things happen to others. That's another trait that isn't realistic. Obviously, bad news happens to everybody that's in those investments. And we all love stories. We all kind of fall in love with stories that people tell you about specific stocks and specific investments. And they say, for example, a good example of that would be, you know what, I only buy bank stocks because they just won't go down. Well, the financial sector in this particular um, downturn was one of the hardest hit. And so banks really um, were not the safe area to be in. In fact, probably what you'd say would be riskier would be healthcare and technology. That was a safer spot to be in because they recovered the quickest, so far anyway. Um, anchoring, anchoring is another one. Now, relating to the familiar experiences, even when inappropriate. So you have a specific time in your life, and you said, well, this is the way it was. And it go back, going back to bank stocks, they've never had a... I, I, they've always paid their dividend. They've, they've never had a bad year in, just call it, 20 years. Well, again, maybe the new normal will be different. So you're anchoring to what has happened but may not happen in the future. But it feels good to anchor because that's what you're, you're used to. And, again, anchoring didn't work very well for people in Nortel or BlackBerry where they were leading technologies, and next thing, they're basically one went bankrupt and one is very much a, a – hardly a shadow of its former self. Diversification, this is interesting. A lot of people feel they're diversified, but they don't really get to the nuts and bolts. And you need to have an advisor that properly diversifies you. So I've had some that say, oh, yeah, I've got a global fund, a Canadian fund, and a U.S. fund. I remember looking at this situation, and it was doing extremely well because what happened is the broker put them in the best-performing funds. Well, all those funds had a very large percentage in that year in the Canadian resource sector, which was doing phenomenal. So it wasn't really very well diversified. It was actually so overweight in one area. But it felt good. You looked at the numbers, hey, this is a global fund. Well, it turned out it was 30% Canadian. So that, that meant it really wasn't a very well diversified portfolio. But it looked good on paper, but you had to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, mental accounting. 
this is what we all do. If you say you bought a stock at, say, $50 and, or a mutual fund or any investment at, at a certain price, well, you want to get – a lot of people do not want to sell it until it gets back to that price. So if it drops by, say, it went from 50 to 30, I'll wait till it gets back up to 50 to get out of that one. And this happens in the stocks a lot more than mutual funds because they say, oh, I don't want to lose money. So therefore, I'll wait for this one to come back. And meanwhile, there may be others that have done, will do extremely well coming out of this. And I know our fund managers were spending a lot of time with that, taking money out of ones that they didn't feel would recover as quick. Uh, a good example might be airlines. And buying areas that would recover a lot quicker, um, say technology or, or out of working from home kind of things, and they're moving a lot of money to those type of areas that have done extremely well. And so and then there's loss aversion. And that's, again, going back to mental accounting. You never want to have that loss. So, therefore, you're buying into something that you just don't want to sell. So to create that loss, or you don't want to buy something that's already down. Because even though it's a very good value, when prices are lower, it's actually better to buy. But you looked at what it has done recently, and you think, whoa, I'm going to extrapolate this. It's going to keep going down. Well, that generally doesn't work that way. And it's funny. In our business, when we're one of the few businesses when the prices drop, people don't want to buy. Yeah, we're just talking, you know, gas prices may be on the rise now. Oh, I should have bought gas before. Everybody expects gas to go down, I mean to go back up, but they don't expect it to go down very long. So they, won't, they often line up at the pumps when there's like four cents off a liter. But here when the market drops by... 25%, there was no lineup at our office. I don't know about you, Andy, but I know that my, my office didn't have that kind of lineup. No. Okay. <laughs> and, so, and then there's the recency effect. And that's when people are basically looking at what's happened recently to a company, whether it's going down or going up, and make decisions based on what it's done recently. So with all these different things that go through our heads, and these are all, this is just what makes us human. It also is why we generally don't do extremely well in terms of being investors because they make for bad decisions. And one was market timing. It was actually interesting. In 2019, and 2019 was the best year in seven years in terms of the stock market going up, and they have this what they call a guess-right ratio. How many people guessed right? And actually, going back to 2000, it was the lowest that people guessed right. People thought it was going to be a, a bad year last year. It turned out to be a great year. In fact, only one quarter guessed right. And normally it's about a 50-50. Half get right, half get wrong. So it's, it's funny. Everybody was betting against the market last year, and they missed. A lot of people wouldn't invest. It was one of the hated years. This whole bull run we had prior to this pandemic was one of the hated bull markets because people just think, well, it's going to go down, it's going to go down, and they missed one of the longest runs in the stock market. So, and it's funny, even though the ones that say we're guessing right, the dollar volume was a lot higher on the ones that guessed it would go down. So even though there was some people that guessed it right, they still end up taking the wrong end of it. So at the end of the day, what we're finding is that the average investor is getting substantially and quite often almost half the return that they could be by, because of all these psychological reasons. And that's where a good advisor will come into play and help with 
your decision-making as a client and try to take all that away from you. And for me, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fears, a lot of discussions. Some of it's very, very knowledgeable people. But at the end of the day, they're still, looking, they're still people, and they still have all these emotions, and those emotions end up costing them a lot of money. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you as soon as we iron our plaid shirts. 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They'll get back to you, 905-529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about uh, case studies on retirement. There's a way to do this right and not so right, Correct. Well, you, you know, people are still, uh, even amongst, amongst all the COVID concerns and our crisis that we're in, people are still trying to figure out how to retire. And uh, in, in this particular case that uh, came across, uh, that I spoke with these, this couple, was pre-COVID-19. So this was uh, actually from late last year, I think around December, before any of this had happened. But at the same time... Um, was sort of similar in the context of what people are trying to do and some of the impacts of what we're facing today. But, uh, you know, so this couple, we'll call them uh, Beth and Wayne, and uh, they've been in the Hamilton area for the last 30 years. And uh, right now they were, they're age 61 and 68. And um, so actually Wayne, Wayne had been laid off and, um, but you know what, he likes, he likes working, and even at age 68, finds it more, you know, more enjoyable to get out and, and do something. So he actually found uh, another part-time job uh, in the meantime, and uh, and he'll continue to do that. And I think uh, probably will retire at some point in the next three years. That was the thought process. So Beth retired last year at age 60, and uh, they have two kids and two grandkids and they also live in the area too which is nice because uh sometimes your travel expenses when it comes to visiting grandkids can ramp up if they're not local uh so that was a bonus and um so as i said they want to retire in three years so that would be 64 and wayne age 71 and so we assume that he's going to continue to work in some kind of part-time capacity and even during this uh, situation we're in right now, he felt that he um, he has lots of work. In fact, they're hiring where he's at. But um, uh, so we're going to keep his income at about twenty thousand a year for the next three years. Uh, and they want to travel some more. This is uh, obviously something we're all thinking about. But uh, the goal was to be able to spend a month somewhere south, a month in Mexico, maybe, and uh, you know, it probably around five grand a month that they were budgeting to be able to do that as part of their retirement lifestyle. And, um, and they like to replace their cars. They've got two, um, two Toyota vehicles, which they have, and uh, they keep them well-maintained, but probably about every five to seven years, they're thinking about wanting to replace a vehicle and uh, spending somewhere between thirty dollars to $35,000 to do that. But, and they budgeted about 500 a month 
uh, as part of an ongoing expense to maintain or have a, two vehicles at this point as well. So, you know, like everybody, they want to maintain their lifestyle as they head into retirement. And, uh, and part of that also meant uh, helping out their children or even their grandchildren. And so there were some discussions about what that might mean, um, perhaps a registered education savings plan. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, or maybe leaving a legacy as part of an estate if they haven't, uh, if they haven't spent it all by then. But so that was an important component in thinking about how much they can spend if they didn't want to spend it all. They actually wanted to have an estate at the end where they could provide some kind of legacy. And we wanted to think about there's longevity, so we wanted to think about how long to run this projection and, and their plan. And so we took it up to age 95 for for uh, the last survivor. So it's basically a 30-year retirement, and this is something that um, you know Don and I work on all the time is trying to figure out a two-person 30-year retirement plan, and then bringing all those components together to try and uh, improve on what people are doing and provide more clarity and confidence going forward in terms of their retirement. Of course, we had to account for inflation along the way. So we used 2.5% as as their inflation rate. And their income right now is about uh, $50,000 a year from pensions. He had uh, built up some pensions in his previous work and uh, to two different employers. Uh, they also have been receiving uh, Canada, uh, sorry, old age security, <clears throat> as well as um, some Canada pension plan. They started that, and they did that before I met them. But um, so their total income plus the part time is about seventy thousand a year. And so the next thing you want to think about, we sort of have an idea of their goals and the timeframes, is to look at well, where are they today? And that involves a cash flow analysis and also a net worth analysis. So in terms of cash flow, as I mentioned, it's about 70000 a year. But what's going out? Where are they spending money? And how much is going to cost them to maintain this retirement lifestyle that they want? Uh, the fixed cost on a monthly basis for them is about $2,600. And then they had uh, the car expense, which they're committing 500 a month to, and then discretionary expenses. So this could be anything from... Uh, you know, extra things around the house or some um, replacing something, 1400 a month. So a total of $4,500 a month or 54000 per year of total uh, cash flow needs. Travel on top of that, 5000 So approximately about 60000 a year or 5000 a month in terms of their uh, total lifestyle heading into retirement. Now, in terms of assets, they had... Uh, $650,000 in various accounts. And this is something where, and I think we talked about this sort of consolidation, all your eggs in one basket concept, uh, one of the, a couple of shows ago. But as I totaled them all up, they actually have uh, seven different registered accounts. So TFSA 1, TFSA 2, RRSPs, spousal RSPs, a RIF, a LIF. Uh, so that was seven with three different institutions. And then on top of that, just in their short, short-term reserve, they had uh, about 12000 what we call an emergency fund. But it's actually spread between five different accounts, <clears throat> you know, 2000 here or 1500 there. And diff- at, at, again, two or sorry, three different institutions. And they were basically, you know, had been chasing some rates to try and get uh, a higher short-term return on that. So altogether, 12 accounts and uh, uh, four different institutions. So things were, it was complex and it was very difficult to see what the whole picture looked like as well. 
And then they have their home, which they own, which they valued at about 450000 And uh, so that and net worth of around $1.1 million. And, you know, that sort of million-dollar goal for everybody, if they can have a net worth of a million dollars, uh, I'd be rich, right? <laughs> so um, <clears throat> so this is, um, I think... They could write of, a song about that. I know, they could write a song about yeah. that. So when we analyzed all of this, we, we like to take a look at what their current plan is. So in other words, we didn't, if we just had, they came in off the street, we plug in their numbers, how are, how are things going, what are they doing? Um, and a couple of the things we looked at was some life insurance. They had a, a term five policy for $250,000, which was costing them about 150 bucks a month. And really the thought behind that was uh, probably towards the two kids or even the two grandkids in terms of a legacy. And, but the problem with term five is that every five years the rate goes up. And with Wayne turning uh, 68, he, at 70, it was going to be another uh, higher rate, and then at 75, another higher, and then it ends because it's not a permanent policy. So we discussed as part of the plan, maybe that should be a permanent policy. What could they do? Um, or maybe they should they be helping out with an RESP? Uh, they were also concerned about estate planning <clears throat> and how much probate tax would cost, legal fees, and funeral expenses. So we looked at... Um, the analysis showed about 11500 in probate tax right now. Legal costs to settle their estate, we assumed about $7,500. And they agreed that a $10,000 burial budget each, so twenty grand total. So total about 39000 in terms of estate costs or settlement costs as well. And um, so we get, then we get into looking at, well, what are the recommendations? <clears throat> How do we... How do we improve on where they are right now? And when we when we did a quick shot, snapshot of their uh, chance of success based on the current picture, uh, it was 85%. So, you know, it, at the end of the day, not too bad. And but that you know, that again provided some uncertainty uh, in terms of flexibility for changing uh, cash flow or being able to maybe give a lump sum to the kids. So. Uh, and there were a lot of little <clears throat> loose ends or opportunities that we came up with. The first thing was to establish a good asset allocation model, and Don was talking about that. Uh, you know, because the, there was different different investments, different they're all over the map. We really needed a clear plan on that, so we recommended what we call our managed asset program in a moderate risk profile, so something in the 60-40 kind of split. Uh, we did recommend that they cancel this term life insurance policy, uh, if not, you know, maybe at the next turnaround, but consider what a permanent policy with a fixed premium. So maybe 100000 would be a lower amount, but they would have a permanent policy in place there. Wayne had been contributing to an RRSP on a, on a monthly basis, but his, uh, his tax rate wasn't that high. Uh, you know, you can earn about 48000 in Ontario and be in the lowest bracket. So, um, the benefit of the RRSP for him didn't make a lot of sense. So we said, stop stop contributing. Don't claim your RRSP contribution uh, this year. Let's save it in case you have a, a higher year because he, he might go back to his other job. That's possible. Um, we did talk about, and a big question for them was, should they just live off their RRSPs now and leave all their other money, uh, get that money out of the RRSP, I should say, uh, to avoid future tax? And what we did talk about is, if to the extent that his income was under that forty-eight thousand per year, it could make sense to take out the RSPs now if, if they need it and put it into a TFSA plan. Uh, 
we did, I did recommend that we start a ta- tax-free savings plan at 300 a month each and uh, set that up just to get a base plan for the tax-free savings. They have some extra cash right now while they're working for the next three years. And, you know, we did have to watch his part-time income. We don't want to make sure, we don't want to get any uh, old age security claw back for him as well. And that income threshold is around 70, 76, 77,000. And uh, we did talk about considering uh, an RESP for their grandson, Isaac. He's turning 15 and we needed to get $2,500 was the thought process into that before the end of this year so that he can qualify for future RESP grants and income as well. So when we started doing all of these different strategies and pulling them all together, uh, the one thing that we also talked about was fees. And currently we, we saw, based on their portfolio, they were paying about 2.26% in fees. And um, so by, able, by consolidating things, we were actually able to bring their fees down to about 1.9%, which was saving them about 200 bucks a month. And uh, so that was an important part of the analysis as well. And so then the next step was to sort of run what we call our Monte Carlo analysis and understand did we, how much did we improve by applying these different strategies on what their current situation was. So if, I come, if you just remember, I said they had about an 85% success rate based on the current situation. We were able to get that up to 99%. And, and more importantly, the difference in terms of their net worth or their net estate going forward was significant. We, um, under the current plan, their net estate was going to be around oh, about $1 million after taxes and their etc uh and with the changes they now had their estate went up to 1.5 million so a $500,000 improvement and uh you know and this is this now gives them some flexibility to maybe help out their kids if they wanted to be able to or help out the grandkids as well and be a lot more confident so this is sort of kind of speaks back to what is the value of planning and, you know, is there, when you go through this process, how much can you actually improve on your overall outcome? And I know, Don, you and I were talking about this as well. Yes, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, Rob Carrick from Global Mail actually cited a company that kind of worked all those numbers together and says, what does the perfect advisor add to a plan in terms of a person's rate of return? And the number they came up with was 2.88%. And whether it's totally scientific or not, it's still substantial. And it was actually interesting. It came down to five areas. And the very first one where everybody thinks, okay, well, if I have a, you know, if my guy moves my money around and rebalances it, and that's, that's going to add a lot of value. It turns out that did the least. That, add, that added 0.1% to increasing a person's return. The biggest single area was preventing behavioral mistakes. And that's what I was talking about earlier, is people are, unfortunately, people, and and we don't lend ourselves, our behavior and what's inherent to us ends up right in our DNA, very difficult not to make mistakes. And this is where an advisor will curtail some of your urges and say, okay, here's what you should do without having any emotion, other than, of course, we care about people and and our clients, but it's not the same type of thing where dopamine takes into effect in our brains. So that's 1% just on preventing behavioral mistakes. Now, adding two together, um, planning and ancillary services, what Andy was just doing is going through a financial plan. 
that adds 0.72% per year to a person's return by having a, a plan and going through all those different things, making sure people are doing the right things. And you can see going from an 85% chance of success to a 99% chance of success. And that's what planning does. Uh, tax planning, which Andy also discussed, adds 0.66% to your overall rate of return, while making sure you don't get your old age security clawed back, uh, making sure you qualify for certain tax deductions. That adds more than half a percent, 0.66%. And then it's kind of interesting, the actual basic investment management, which is just putting money into an allocation, it's still very important, but it adds 0.4%. So what people often think is, yeah, so my guy balances the portfolio and, and, he, and he has me in some great funds, that adds 0.5%. And all the other things that Andy and I do adds 2.38%. So this is where you have to look at your advisor and, and actually give them a check mark. Is he rebalancing your portfolio? Do they have an allocation pie? Is he going through your cash flow analysis? Does he actually give you a financial plan? And is there tax planning? Because you should really see what you're paying for and how much value does he add to you in your total plan. So really, this is about great advice on your whole picture and then just holding your hand to make sure you stick to it. That is key. Yep. All right. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. All right, lots of, uh, lots of uh, different catchphrases and, and programs coming out as of COVID-19. What is the CEWS? CEWS is the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. And it is a program, and, and honestly, this, all of these programs are evolving and changing along the way. But that's okay. You know, we're, we're here to sort of try and shed some light on it and, uh, and help people know, I guess, understand, should I be applying and, or who does it apply to? And the one that I wanted to focus on today was the CEWS, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. And this basically has two different sections to it in terms of qualifying periods. There's the March 15th, which were until April 11th. So March 15th to April 11th. And that particular subsidy period you can apply for now. So it is available. You can uh, get the process started. It makes sense to do that. The second phase, which was April 12th to May 9th, is probably just opening up right now uh, at this point. So if you haven't done either, you, you can probably attack it and get both applied for at this point, and you can go backwards. Uh, now, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy is to a, a subsidy to the amount of 75% of an employee's wages for 12 weeks, for 12 weeks. So this ends June 6th. And so who, is it apply, who does it apply to? 
it would be the employer is going to make the application, and you have to have uh, a decrease in your business, and you also must have a, C- a CRA payroll account as of March 15th. Uh, in other words, you can't go in and create a payroll account now and then try and go back retroactively. You had to have been in business employing people uh, with a decline in your business and a payroll account as of March 15th. So there's three sort of things that will help you qualify. And what they look at in terms of a decrease in your business is uh, what they're looking for is a revenue reduction. And in the revenue reduction, there are two strategies around, two measurements, I guess, around this. The first is a baseline where you can look at what's what was my income in March 2019, so a year ago, or the average of January and February for this year, 2020. And then looking at that as your baseline, you now look at your March income and revenue, your April income and revenue, and your May income. Uh, and if you had a decline of 15% in March over the previous year. Uh, and again, you can either take March of the previous year, March 2019, or the average of January and February. If you had a decline of 15% on either of those two baselines, then you would qualify to apply. And if you qualify for one period, the first period, you usually you will automatically qualify for the next period. The April period is a de- decrease of 30% in revenue, and the May period is a decrease of 30% in revenue as well. And um, non-arms-length individuals, uh, those would be, so if you employed a spouse or a partner uh, or a family member, you can't ramp up their pay to try and get more out of this. So they will keep an eye on that and make sure you're not trying to uh, to get more than you're entitled to. There's also a temp- temporary wage subsidy, which was introduced, and this is sort of in parallel to the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, and it's a 10% reduction in the income tax withheld at source. You can't double dip, so you can get a total of 75% at the end of the day for this benefit uh, in terms of payroll. So now I wanted to sort of give you an idea if, if you were thinking about who might be a scenario, and I just came up with this one in, in terms of this the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. Let's say you're an employer and you've got 10 employees, and each of those employees makes uh, $750 a week. So that's uh, a $39,000 a year uh, payroll for for each individual. And out of that $750 a week that you're paying, you're also withholding uh, about $100 a week in tax. And so uh, all of your 10 employees are still working, and uh, your total payroll is $30,000 a month, right? $3,000 a month, roughly for uh, 10 employees, $30,000 a month. So under this scenario, if you, have, if you can qualify as a reduction in your baseline revenue uh, of 15% for March or 30% for April, then you would qualify for the, the wage subsidy, which is $22,500 for the first four-week period. So $30,000 was your payroll going out. You're going to get a subsidy of $22,500 coming back in under this scenario if you can qualify. So you want to understand what is your baseline and uh, for measurement and then look at how much did your revenue drop and then you can determine how much you can apply for. So the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy 
if you're an employer or you know someone who's an employer, take a look at it because I think there's some opportunities there for you to earn some benefit from this COVID-19 situation. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can access old archive shows or ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Or you can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. Quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. All right, uh, obviously tax time has been extended this year due to COVID-19. But there's a lot of stuff that's still missed. Uh, these are probably the biggest ones that are. Well, yeah, I got a list here of the most missed tax deductions. Now, the first thing everybody has to do is make sure you do n- make sure you file that tax return. Um, I, that that is actually one of the missed items is not filing at all, and there's a five percent penalty for those that don't get it in. So I'm sure there's a you know the season the weather's starting to get nicer, and I know people want to get out there and do things and get those tax returns in. But uh, I would say the the number one or number two, depending on which, uh, which website I went to, the disability tax credit is one of the most missed. And the reason is, is because a lot of people feel they have to be pretty much in a wheelchair or in a, such a, a position that they can't do much at all, that that's how you're going to qualify for this credit, which is actually not the case. Basically, you, uh, you have to have a serious and prolonged physical or mental impairment. And the reason they give you this credit is to help with those extra living costs related to the disability. And there's a long list, things such as Alzheimer's, diabetes, hearing impairment, uh, glaucoma, um, you know, depending on your mobility, walking. There's, so, there's a massive list, and you can go through them. But at the end of the day, you'd be surprised how many people do not, quali- do not first of all, apply for this. And sometimes I think there's a stigma. Oh, I'm not disabled, and they don't want to do it. Well, until they find out that maybe it's costing them a fair bit of money, about $1,600 per year for every year you do not try to claim this, if you, of course, qualify. So you can claim this tax credit for yourself, a child, a spouse, or a common law. You fill in what this form called a T21, sorry, a 2201. And there's two parts to this. Part 1 or Part A, you fill in. And Part B, your doctor or specialist fills in. And the specialist could be your family doctor or depending if you have a certain thing, an optometrist or a, a hearing doctor or what have you, they would fill in the other portion. And they often will charge you an $80 fee to fill in this, which is, of course, part of You can also use that as a tax credit for your medical expenses. So CRA will access the validity of this claim. And if you're approved, they'll tell you even which years you, you uh, got approved for. And so if you were approved for more than, say, this year, you could go back. I, I just worked on one recently. They went back 10 years. They were approved for 10 years. I went to this client and said, I think you may qualify for a lot more years. I would go to your doctor, and I, I thought it might be seven, maybe eight years. They got back to 2009, and they got $15,500 back. 
uh, they had to file for it, but you, there's a T1 adjustment you file for, and you simply mail it in, or you go to your, your MyCRA account and do it. But likely it's best just to mail with something like this one in. It is not that hard. You do not have to go to a lawyer. You do not have to go to a special company that um, tries to get this money for you. Those companies, there's a whole bunch of them out there. I, I wasn't familiar with just how many. I heard a commercial not long ago, and they're charging from 18% to 30% fee to get your own money back. And this is something you can do yourself. So if it was, a say, a $15,000 that you're going to get back, there's a $3,000 fee. And I was even going through something like, say, an H&R Block would charge $30 a year. So if it was 10 years' worth, that would be $300. Well, if you do not feel comfortable doing this for yourself, $300 is a heck of a lot better than paying $3,000 in terms of a fee. So I would, I would, I almost liken this to a payday loan service that you should be just doing this yourself or go to your tax preparer. It is not that big of a deal. It should not be charging a percentage. It should be a flat fee per year, and it really doesn't cost much. But the upside is, is massive. You can, you know, to get a, a fifteen thousand dollars in this particular case. But even if it was five thousand, it's it's something that you, you probably have spent some money on different. Um, medical equipment, and you've been paying it out of your pocket. Meanwhile, the government was going to give you credit to help pay for this stuff. So that's the number one. Uh, number two is actually medical expenses. I know I talked about that last week, so I won't go through that list, but that's very overlooked. Uh, the, the other one is employment expenses. And I know a lot of you out there, and this is very appropriate right now because so many stay-at-home people with COVID-19 that they have to stay at home and they need to get signed a T2200, which is interesting enough, it's not far from the disability tax credit form, which was a T2201. But this is a T2200, and this allows you, this is a, a conditions of employment form. And from this, once it's signed, they'll, they'll actually go through what you'd qualify. But things such as travel, parking, telephone and Internet, um, as a percentage of business use that you use as part of your house, uh, if you have an assistant, if you have to pay office rent, office supplies, um, and again, if you look at the square foot, if you have to have a home office, the, you take the number of square feet for the office divided by the total square feet of your home. And let's say it works out to, say, 20% of your home. You'd get to go 20% of all your gas costs, your hydro costs, your water, your repairs, alarm, or rent. It does not include, funny enough, in house insurance or property taxes unless you're under commission. But as a true employee, you'd get the other ones covered. This can be very helpful in your taxes, and it's simply taking this 2200 form, T2200 form, and getting your employer to, uh, to fill this in. So employment expenses are big. Also, the other last one would be carrying charges. And just to make sure if you have any tax-deductible interest because you borrowed for investment purposes or advisory fees. And those are often overlooked. I know I went over... Um, somebody missed five years of advisory fees, and they got a big check back. No big deal, another T1 adjustment, and it's definitely worth your while. But again, those are the big uh, four or five that are often missed, and, uh, and hopefully now you can go back and either finish off your tax returns and get those done properly or fill in a T1 adjustment. 
We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thank you very much, Thanks Scott. so much, Scott. Take care. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.